All right, announcements. Don't forget to vote. Early voting is running on now, and Election Day is next Tuesday, March the 5th. And then, of course, the Chafer Conference is next Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And so I think we may still need some uh, volunteers. I think there's need some volunteers for cookies. And then um, we still need a couple of volunteers to work once a month in the nursery, and that way it's once a month. And we have four volunteers, so that spreads it out a bit. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So before we get started tonight, let's make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. Let's bow our heads, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that we can come together this evening to study again about evangelism and the importance of being able to be clear, focusing on the truth of your word. And Father, we just pray that you'd give us opportunities and open doors for us because there are people all around us who need to hear the wonderful news that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for their sins and they have forgiveness and they can have eternal life because their sins are paid for and they need to believe that. Father, we also pray for people we know, a lot of pastors that we know who are struggling with various degrees of illness from cancer to uh, tumors, brain tumors. Um, Father, we pray too for John Height and his, John Height's family uh, at this time of uh, his being transferred to heaven, that though they are joyful, they also grieve his loss and his absence. So, Father, we pray comfort for Mary Jane and for their kids and for all of his uh, close friends. And, Father, we pray for us tonight as we study on this topic of a, of a pattern or a model to use in evangelism that you'll help us to uh, understand the process and think through how we would be explaining the gospel to someone. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I prayed for it, but um, I'll announce it. John Height, who we ordained at Baraka Church in 91, uh, went to be with the Lord suddenly at 1 o'clock in the morning, uh, Sunday morning. And John and I became friends from that time when we ordained him. And he had been, uh, when I lived in Connecticut and traveled some, he'd come hear me when I was up in the Northeast and we just have had a long friendship, and he's been part of the Friday morning pastors group since its inception, which has been about 12 years. And he had a great sense of humor, and everybody was just stunned because what happened, basically, he had a blood clot. He had had COVID two years ago. Doctors said he'd never walk again because he didn't have the lung power, and uh, yet he had gradually, slowly worked up to where he was walking about a mile and a half. And um, and then Sunday night, he just hadn't been feeling good for two or three days. He sat down on the bed and turned to his wife and said, I don't feel so good. And then he just fell backwards dead. So it's quick. 
and uh, sudden, and that always gets our attention because we are all mortal, and we don't know when God's going to call us home. So it's important to keep that. So as we've been talking about Jewish evangelism, and this is the third part, and there'll only be tonight. We'll finish up, and we'll be back on Interlocked next week. Uh, I have titled this tract, and there is a PDF of it on the um, Dean Bible Ministries website. If you go to the um, Documents tab at the top and then go to that page, and then on the right column called Latest Files at the very top, you can download the PDF. And uh, everything we're, I'm talking about tonight's right here in this PDF. And so the question is to ask a Jewish person, but this works for other people, but I've specifically written this for an, uh, a Jewish person. And there's a reason for the question, as I'll mention in just a minute, but it works through a, a process in going through an understanding of what God requires in terms of righteousness. That's the, uh, that's the focus. So it's entitled, Are You Right With God?, which comes from a question that Bildad asks Job in Job 9. Are, how can a man be right or righteous with God? Job chapter 9, verse 2. So he asks, can a man be righteous with God? And the Hebrew word there is sadiq. And there's other forms of this word, verb forms and noun forms, but it's uh, meaning as a noun is righteousness or justice. And that's a very important question. How can be right with God? Because God is, and this is something we all know, God is perfectly righteous. But within Judaism, the word sadiq uh, is a word that you're not familiar with, but you're not a, a, a very uh, respectable Jewish person if you don't know this word, because it is the Hebrew word that they have come to use for charitable deeds, for good works, for things that uh, you do to help others. And one of the most important things that you can do is help somebody with an education so they can take care of themselves and various other things. And this is what is important in uh, earning your way to heaven. And so this is the question. And uh, a number of years ago now, 10 or 12 years ago, I was talking with a Jewish person and they used this word, pronounced it a little differently, and I went, why, why are you using that? that? Oh, that's just good deeds. So, you know, I worked with that. And then one time I was asked by another Jewish friend who said, well, how, how were Jewish people saved in the Old Testament? And so I sort of worked through some of this. I went to some of these passages, and that's where I got this idea. And when we were in uh, up in um, New Jersey this last this last August, looking at a number of different um, tracks that Friends of Israel had and some other tracks that others had put out, some, some of these Messianic ministries, uh, there wasn't anything quite like this. Now, there's two parts to it, and the first part talks about righteousness, and the second part summarizes uh, uh, 12 prophecies that are fulfilled in, in, in Jesus. So the question is, can a how can a man be right with God? And 
we should maybe raise that question if we're talking to somebody. How do you think a person can be right with God? This is a question that's found in the Hebrew Scriptures. And one of the things that I do as I go through here in the Scriptures are all taken from the Tanakh. The Tanakh is the Hebrew, uh, is the Old Testament. And it's an acronym. The three consonants are T, N, and K. T is for Torah, the law. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. The N is for the Nevi'im. That's the Hebrew word for prophets. And so in the Hebrew Bible, uh, we think of the prophets as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, and the, the uh, 12 minor prophets. And Daniel, we usually put in there, though they would never, they classify Daniel with the writings. That's the third division, the Ketuvim. And so that the TNK is pronounced Tanakh, and that's their, their scripture. So I used a 1985 translation, which I would probably say is somewhat like the NIV. You look at it, sometimes it's okay, and sometimes it's really not. It's an interpretation rather than a, than a translation. And in those cases, I would go back to the JPS, that's for the Jewish Publication Society, um, Tanakh, which was published in, uh, I believe it was 1918. And so that, 1917. So that's a, an important reason why sometimes I use the JPS 1917 because it is, it will reflect the Hebrew word tzedakah with a word related or closely related to righteousness or righteousness, whereas in the 1985 Tanakh sometimes it uses some strange word and has a, they have they they're they're more interpretive. So we would begin a conversation, or as we've already had a conversation, just asking the question, well. How, how do you think that we can be right with God? It's really important to ask questions. Let them think about, well, how? And then you can move on and say, well, uh, how, how do you understand that what the Jewish Bible says about how to be right with God? And you're probably going to get something that isn't what the Jewish Bible says. It's what the Talmud says. I pointed out before, they in seminary, the rabbis study Talmud. They don't study the Old Testament. And people, that's what they study in their Sunday school. They have, um, they, they study Talmud and rabbinical writings and rabbinical interpretations. So um, just ask that question. They say, well, and then you can always ask the question, well, can we kind of talk about what, just what is said in the Hebrew scriptures? And we need to ask this question, how can you or I or anyone be right with God? And that this has been known for, you know, over 3,500 years since Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Really beyond that, going back to, uh, going back to Abraham. And so what I focus on here is looking at key scriptures in the Old Testament. I don't go to the New Testament. It's the gospel according to the Old Testament. And how does a person become right with God? How can we possess a righteousness which measures up to God's own righteousness, a righteousness that he will accept? So I'm going to walk us through these basic principles. First of all, we have to start with God, that God created each of us to have a personal relationship with him. We didn't just happen on the scene. 
the Hebrew Scriptures teach us that God created us in His image and likeness in order that we might have a personal, intimate relationship with Him. That separates human beings from all other life forms. Animals have nefesh. Human beings have nefesh, which is translated soul, but we are in the image and likeness of God, so that is a higher order of creation. No other sentient, that is, intelligent being, is in the image of God. The angels are not in the image of God, and animals are not in the image of God. So God intentionally created human beings to be a finite representative of himself, so that we can know him and we're able to communicate with him. That means a two-way road. He can speak to us and we can understand what he communicates and we can communicate with God and we can learn and have a relationship with God. So that's all part of what what we started out being. And this is seen in Genesis one twenty-seven. And God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So men and women created by God are in the image of God. We go to the second sub-point. God is defined throughout scriptures as the creator of the heavens, the earth, and all that is in them, especially Israel. In Genesis 1.1 we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The JPS just has a singular for heaven. And then it's interesting to go to Exodus 20.11. I've asked some of my Jewish friends this question when creation comes up. Well, I don't know how about this creation stuff. I said, well, let's just start with how do you understand Exodus 20.11? For in six days, so it starts off with an explanation. God has already told them that you should work six days and rest on the seventh. Well, why should I do that? And then the explanation is verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And I remember asking one friend of mine and I um, the question, I said, so how often do you observe Shabbat? And he said, every Saturday, every seventh day. I said, and the pattern for that is that God worked six days and rested the seventh day. Do you believe in a literal six-day creation? And he just was silent. I said, if you don't believe in a literal six-day creation, if God actually created and those, were, those days were thousands of years, then you don't ever have to take Saturday off. You can work for 6,000 years and then rest for the 7,000 year. You don't ever have to take a vacation. You're a workaholic. He was a lawyer. He's a workaholic. And that really got him to thinking. So just raising little observations like that can, can get folks to thinking about what the Scripture says. In Isaiah 43:15, God says to Isaiah, I am, and to Israel through Isaiah, I am your Holy One, the Lord your King, the Creator of Israel. So right now we have this Hamas war going on. Why is Israel so important? Why are the Jewish people important? Why is it that when something like this blows up, all the world seems to turn against Israel? This is even worse than in World War II. What in the world is going on? Because your scriptures say that God, Yahweh, created Israel. 
And then in Isaiah 45:12, God says, It was I who made the earth and created man upon it. My own hand stretched out the heavens, and I marshaled all their host. That would refer to the stars. Now, what I find interesting as I read through Isaiah is how many times God affirms that he's the creator of everything. Along with that, he says he's unique and one of a kind. We'll see that as we go along. But he emphasized that he created everything. He's the creator. Verse uh, 45, 18, For thus said the Lord, the creator of heaven, who alone is God, who formed the earth and made it, who alone established it. He did not create it a waste, but formed it for habitation. I am the Lord and there is none else. This is telling us that God's creation is intentional and purposeful and that God had a plan and God has had a reason for establishing the earth the way it is. So God created us to have a relationship with him. We can know him because he created us in his image and likeness and that he not only created us, he created all mankind in the earth and he created Israel. And under the third subpoint, God wants us to know him personally. He desires a personal relationship with human beings he created. He has a plan for human beings to have this personal relationship with him. And the verse for this is in Jeremiah, another one of the, of the prophets. And I will give them the understanding to acknowledge me, the Lord said, for I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God when they turn back to me with all their heart. So God desires for human beings and especially the Jewish people to have a relationship with him. Under the fourth subpoint D, we have to reflect upon God's character. God is perfect righteousness. He's not just more moral than we are, but he is the very standard of all that is right and just. He is righteous. And so God's righteous standard is asserted again and again through the writings of the Hebrew prophets. In Hebrews 11, uh, I mean Psalm 11, 7, for the Lord is righteous. And there's our word, Sadiq. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. And in Psalm 71, 19, Thy righteousness also, O God, which reaches under the heavens, thou who hast, hast done great things, O God, who is like you. Again and again, we're going to see this emphasis that God is one of a kind. There is none like him. And so human beings have a tendency to try to make God more like us. And God keeps saying, no, I'm not like anything you can imagine. I'm very different. I'm one of a kind. And he's, he's perfectly righteous. In Numbers 23:19, we read, God is not a man uh, to be capricious or mortal to change his mind. Would he speak and not act, promise and not fulfill? The is expect an answer like, no, he wouldn't promise and not fulfill. He wouldn't speak and not act. And then in Psalm 119, 142, the psalmist says, your righteousness, that's uh, Sadiq, is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is the truth. So what have we seen? We've seen that God created everything, created human beings in his image and likeness. He created them righteous as he is righteous, and he created them for a relationship, but something happened. And that is sin. 
And that's the second point. God cannot have a personal relationship with us after Adam's sin because we are sinful and separated from him. No one is righteous. So the first sub-point of this is we're all sinful, every one of us. There's no one who's not sinful. Our first verse is Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw how great was man's wickedness on the on earth and how every plan devised by his mind was nothing but evil all the time. Then here's a great passage from Ecclesiastes. That it, most English translations will translate, for there is not one good. But the Hebrew word there is tzaddik. It's righteous, so it should be translated. There's not one righteous man. There's not one righteous man on earth who does what is best, and there it's the word good. So there's not one righteous man on earth who does what is best or what is good and doesn't err. So how many people are able to do good and not err? Zero. Not one righteous man on earth who does good and doesn't err. In Psalm 142, 2 and 3, the Lord looks down from heaven on mankind to find a man of understanding, a man mindful of God. All have turned bad, altogether foul. There is none who does good, not even one. So in God's eyes, as it is righteous standard, nobody measures up. There's not one person that God looks at and says, you're doing pretty good. Not one. None of us measure up. So how do we become righteous with God? A couple more verses. Psalm 143, 2. Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for before you no creature is righteous. Isaiah 64, 5. In the Tanakh, it's 64, 5. In the English, it's 64, 6. And we are all become as one that is unclean, and all our righteousnesses are as a polluted garment. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So God says that all of our righteousnesses, all the best that we do, is just like a filthy garment. There's nothing there that's of of any value. So this is a good time to talk about, well, in, in light of God's assessment, what, if anything, can we do that would measure up to God's standards? And when God is saying these things, he's even including Isaiah, who's a prophet. So the bottom line on this is to keep showing that what the, what the Old Testament teaches is that man is sinful and wicked and that he can't do anything to measure up to God's standard. So B, the second sub-point under two is the consequences for our sin is death, which is separation from God. Death always has that idea of separation. Spiritual death eventually results in physical death. Adam didn't die physically for another 930 years after he ate the fruit. So the issue is that immediately there was a difference. They ran and hid from God when God came looking for them. Genesis 2.17, God had told them, But as for the tree of knowledge of good and bad, you must not eat of it. For as soon as you eat of it, you shall die. And then the result, after he goes through the curse in Genesis 3.24, he drove the man out and stationed east of the Garden of Eden the cherubim, 
and the fiery ever-turning sword to guard the way to the tree of life. So the word cherubim there is in the plural, and that means he stationed many cherubs around the garden. So it is encircled by a phalanx of cherubs to prevent human beings from getting back into the garden. In Ezekiel 18.20 we read, The person who sins, he alone shall die. A child shall not share the burden of a parent's guilt, nor shall a parent share the burden of a child's guilt. The righteousness of the righteous shall be accounted to him alone, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be accounted to him alone. But you see, what we've already seen is we're all unrighteous. We go to uh, another passage, Isaiah 59, 2 and 3. But your iniquities have been a barrier between you and your God. This is what God is telling the Jewish people at the time of Isaiah. Your iniquities are a barrier between you and your God. Your sins have made him turn his face away and refuse to hear you. Now, just as a side note, some of you may remember, some, most of you probably don't, you don't pay attention to things like this, but back in the, in, in the I think it was in the 70s, Jimmy Draper was the pa- pastor of First Baptist Church of Oklahoma City. And uh, Jimmy Draper was asked a question, Do, does God hear the prayers of Jewish people? He said, no, he doesn't. And this made front page news around the country because he was making this horrible statement that God wouldn't listen to the prayers of the Jewish people. How anti-Semitic can you be? And, you know, he should have gone to this passage right away. Your iniquities have been a barrier between you and your God. Your sins have made him turn his face away and refuse to hear you. God refuses to hear people who are disobedient. For your hands are defiled with crime and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips speak falsehood. Your tongue utters treachery. third point so the first point is god is the creator the second point is that man is a fallen creature does not produce righteousness and the third point here is that god does not accept our own efforts of good works to remove our sin that because we're tainted because we're sinners there's nothing we everything we touch is corrupted isaiah 64 5 which i've mentioned already And here I've emphasized the words all. We are all. That includes Isaiah. He's not saying you are all. He's not pointing his finger at the Jewish people. He's saying we are all become as one that is unclean. And all our righteousnesses, all of our good deeds, all of our charitable deeds, all of the good things that we've done are as a polluted garment. And we all do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. In Jeremiah 2.22, Jeremiah says, Though you wash with natron. Natron, I had to look this up. Natron, because what natron is today is not what it was in the ancient world. In the ancient world, it was a, a, a soap that people used to wash their clothes, to wash their bodies, to wash everything clean. And so it was an ancient soap. And he says, Though you wash with natron, and you use much lie, your guilt is ingrained before me, declares the Lord God. Your guilt, that's everybody. Your guilt is ingrained. How can we measure up? How can any man be right before God? So 
So even our good deeds, our best righteousness, our charitable deeds are just filthy, useless before God. Fourth point, God loves us, and he himself provided the way for our sins to be removed. We're not worthy of his love, but he loves us because of who he is, not because of who we are. And so in Isaiah 43:15, we learn something about God's love. He says, I am the Lord. Um, what do we have here? I am your, have I skipped something? I think I did. For a, oh, I'm turning the pages backward. Uh, the Lord revealed himself to me of old. Jeremiah said, eternal love I have conceived for you then. Therefore, I continue my grace to you. So God himself provided the way for our sins to be dealt with, to be removed. Isaiah 43:25. it is I who for my own sake wipe your transgressions away and remember your sins no more. That's grace. God, God is the one who removes our sins, removes our, our guilt. So that brings us down to point five. God's provision required a death, a blood sacrifice. These sacrifices all through the Old Testament, and you can talk about that, you know, back in the days of the tabernacle, before that even, with God made a covenant with Abraham, their blood sacrifices, even before that, when Noah, a Gentile, gets off the ark, he uh, offers sacrifices. So God's provision required a death because the penalty for sin was death. These sacrifices pictured the future provision from the time of Adam and Eve through the time of Noah and incorporated in the Torah, the law of Moses. Leviticus 17.11 For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have assigned it to you for making expiation. Then there's a fun word. Expiation is the canceling of a debt or cleansing. For making expiation for your lives upon the altar, it is the blood as life that affects expiation. So a blood sacrifice, a death has to occur because the penalty for sin is death. Now the sixth point is where things start to get pretty interesting. It's a lengthy point with uh, uh, two subpoints. Three subpoints. Six, animal sacrifices provided a visual image. It's a picture for everybody because as, as God looks at the history of the human race, he starts off giving a lot of information through visual images so that when the real thing comes down the road, people will recognize what it is. So it was only these sacrifices were only a temporary atonement or cleansing for our sin. And animal sacrifices were substitutes for the one bringing the sacrifice. That's why you would have them bring the lamb. They would place their hand on the head of the lamb and they would recite their sins and it's, it's being uh, transferred from them to the sacrifice. So the, uh, the lamb then is the one who is slain for their sins. And so this is designed by God to be a picture of a substitutionary payment for sin. In Genesis 22:13, 13, 
This is the end of the episode where God had told Abram to take uh, Isaac into sacrifice. God never intended him for him to sacrifice. God knew all along because God's omniscient that he's going to provide a, 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 a substitute sacrifice. But it's a test to see if Abraham's willing to go that far uh, to trust God. And so Abram afterward, uh, after God stayed his hand, prevented him from killing Isaac, he, he lifted up his eyes and behold, behind him, a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead or in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Adonai Jireh, as it is said to this day in the mount where the Lord is seen. It's interesting because most of translations I've seen say the Lord provides. And that's the idea, but but it just focus on uh, their translation. Leviticus sixteen thirty four says that, uh, this shall be to you a law for all time to make atonement for the Israelites for all their sins once a year. This is a passage for Yom Kippur, for the Day of Atonement. Then in Isaiah um, Isaiah fifty three six. Now, this coming Sunday, Mitch Glazer is going to be here, and he's going to be speaking on Sunday morning. He's the president of Chosen People Ministries, and about probably about 10 or 12 years ago, they did this huge project. Everywhere you would go in, um, in, in New York, you'd see these billboards with Isaiah 53 written on it. And they had a huge, huge evangelistic outreach in uh, New York and New Jersey based on Isaiah 53. They put out books. They put put out uh, tracts and pamphlets, excellent material. So he's going to be speaking on Isaiah 53 this coming Sunday. Isaiah 53, 6, Isaiah writes, We all went astray. We all went astray like sheep, each going his own way. And the Lord visited upon him the guilt of us all. So it's very, but who's the him? We have to ask these questions. Who does the him refer? Now, the interesting thing is up until approximately 1,000 A.D. that rabbis and midrash commentaries, Jewish commentaries, all understood this to be a messianic prophecy talking about uh, the promised Messiah. But then you had a couple of rabbis who came up with very inventive uh, reinterpretations of Isaiah 53 to say that the servant is Israel. When you go back to Isaiah 40 and read through Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 66, the term my servant refers to Isaiah. Second, it refers to Israel. Third, it refers to the uh, individual Messiah. So how do you discern this? Well, you look at the text, and I'll point it out as we go through it. So the Lord visited upon him. First of all, this is a third-person singular, but they, you could use a third-person singular. That's a he, she, or it is a third-person singular pronoun. You could use that to refer to a nation, but is that the nation here? The Lord visited upon him the guilt of us all, or all of us. Isaiah 53, 7. 
He was maltreated, yet he was submissive. He did not open his mouth. Like a sheep being led to slaughter, like a ewe dumb before those who shear her, he did not open his mouth. And then Isaiah 53.10, But the Lord chose to crush him by disease, that he made himself an offering for guilt. He might see offspring and have long life, and that through him the Lord's the Lord's purpose might prosper. So here we have a lot of the key words like offering for guilt going back to the Levitical sacrifices. Now in Isaiah 53, as I just pointed out, the suffering servant gives his life for Israel. That's how you know the suffering servant in this passage can't be Israel. Because what we're going to see in a minute is a passage where he made himself, for example, in 53.10, he made himself an offering for guilt. But when we get down a little further, we're going to see a passage where he says uh, he uh, paid for the nation. He died for the nation. Well, he, the servant can't be the nation and die for the nation at the same time. So under point seven... Then, um, oh, I keep going to the wrong page. Point seven, God provided a permanent removal of our sin through the promised Messiah who dies as a substitute for the sins of the world. So the first thing that we see is that the Messiah dies in our place. In Isaiah 53, 4, we read, yet it was our sickness that he was bearing. So right away, he, he, the hour here is Israel. So the servant can't be Israel and be um, bearing the sins of Israel. Our suffering that he endured, we accounted him plagued, smitten, and afflicted by God. But he was wounded for our transgression. I, my King James comes out. But he was wounded because of our sins crushed because of our iniquities. I think it's that's very good the way the Tanakh translate that. He's he the individual is wounded because of our sins. Crushed because of our iniquities. He bore the chastisement that made us whole and by his bruises we were healed. We all went astray like sheep, each going his own way, and the Lord visited upon him the guilt of all of us. Well, if all of us is the nation, the people of Israel, how can the Lord visit upon him? How can the him be the people of, of Israel? Next subpoint: the Messiah rose from the dead. Isaiah 53.10 says, but the Lord chose to crush him by disease, that if, that if he made himself an offering for guilt, he might see offspring and have long life. See, that's talking about resurrection. He dies as an offering for guilt that he might see in the future and have long life. That's resurrection. And that through him, the Lord's purpose might prosper. And Isaiah fifty-three twelve. Assuredly, I will give him the many as his portion. He shall receive the multitude as his spoil. So the many and the multitudes parallel in, the, in this um, parallelism 
And that refers to the nation Israel. It actually refers to the remnant. Uh, he shall receive the multitude as his spoil, for he exposed himself to death, and he was numbered among the sinners, which indicates that he wasn't a sinner. Uh, whereas he bore the guilt of the many and made intercession for sinners. So that really emphasizes this fact that he is distinct from the people, distinct from the nation. And then Psalm 1610, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. This is always considered, even by rabbis, uh, ancient rabbis, as a messianic psalm. And Peter uses this verse to show, say, look, David, David was around in, in, in 1000 BC. And, uh, he, it was written by him in around 1000 BC, and he could not have referred to David because David died and he was buried and his body corroded, was corrupted in the grave. So Psalm 1610 can't refer to David. It's referring to somebody else, and it's referring to someone who was raised from the dead. Eighth, all of our righteousnesses are as polluted garments. This is a passage we've already looked at twice, Isaiah 64, 6, and 64, 5 in the Tanakh. And we are all sinners separated by our sins from God. So how does anyone obtain righteousness that God accepts? This is the question. We go back, review the main points. You know, God is a creator of everything. God created human beings in his image and likeness. But we sinned. We used free will to disobey God, and the result was spiritual death and separation from God. And the result of that is passage after passage after passage says there's none good, there's none righteous, not even one. So how do we become righteous before God? As with Abraham, God declares us righteous when we believe in his promise and provision of salvation. Genesis 15, 6 says that, And he, that is Abram, believed in the Lord, and he counted or imputed or reckoned it as righteousness to him. So how did, what, did Abraham, was he circumcised? No. Who, who uses that illustration? Who goes there to illustrate justification and where? Pop quiz. Paul, Romans 4. So Abraham doesn't, didn't have, wasn't circumcised when God made the covenant with him. Abraham wasn't circumcised in Genesis 15. So this is, um, this shows that, that the law hadn't even been given yet. So the law and circumcision, human works were not present for Abraham. He just believed God's promise, and God declared him righteous. And then I love going from there to Isaiah 53.11. Isaiah 53.11 says, Out of his anguish he shall see it. He shall enjoy it to the full through his devotion. My righteous servant makes the many righteous. Look at that. My righteous servant, which is the Messiah, makes the many righteous. That's what he did with Abraham. He made him righteous, declared him righteous. 
It's their punishment that he bears. Deuteronomy 18.15 is another uh, prophetic promise where uh, this is the next point. As with Moses and David, I didn't put the point in here, did I? No, I must have left it out. The point is, uh, the B point is, as with Moses and David, God wants us to listen to this prophet and believe in the Messiah. See, in Deuteronomy, Moses predicted a prophet. Said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet from among your own people like myself whom you shall heed. It wasn't Joshua. It wasn't Samuel. It wasn't Isaiah, Jeremiah. It wasn't Ezra, Nehemiah. Or Daniel, none of these fit that qualification. They're still looking for him. If you read John chapter four, when Jesus goes to um, basically goes to Nablus, goes to Shechem, where the, he goes to Jacob's well and waits for the uh, woman to come, and he asks her for water, which no Jew would ever ask a Samaritan woman to he would not touch water that she had drawn from the well and she just marvels how how can you as a jew uh be be doing this and um he asked her quite a couple of questions to bring out the fact that she had had several husbands and he tells her this without her telling him he tells her well you've had several husbands and the one you're living with isn't your husband and she says i perceive you are the prophet this is what she's doing. She's applying Deuteronomy to what she's experiencing. He knows everything about her. And he says, I perceive that you are the prophet. And so this was always understood up through the early church period by the rabbis, always considered a messianic prophecy. Psalms 2.7 says, let me tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. I have fathered you this day. Who's he talking about? He's not talking about David. He's talking about somebody who's a descendant of David who is called the son of God. Psalm 2.12, pay homage in good homage in good faith, lest he be angered and your way be doomed in the mere flash of his anger. Happy are all who take refuge in him. See, we have to take refuge in God the way God says to take refuge. It was different in the Old Testament period than it is today. And then you come to verse 9. Verse 9 says, um, or point 9 says that these verses demonstrate that all of our good deeds, all of our generous efforts, charitable gifts, can never measure up to the standards of God's righteousness. However, the Hebrew Scriptures also promised a future prophet a future servant, a unique servant of God who would come and bear in his own body the sins of mankind in order to make the many righteous, Isaiah 53:11. Only one who is perfectly righteous can himself bear the sin of those who are not, not righteous. Only one who is perfectly righteous can bear the sin. Um, uh, this is what, uh, yeah, I misread that. Only one, um, this is what the prophet of Isaiah declared. This was exemplified centuries earlier when Abraham believed in God and God counted it to him for righteousness. The promise Abraham believed was that God would be true to his promise. 
in Genesis 3.15 that he would provide a descendant from Eve who would defeat Satan and bear the penalty of sin for the world. But like Abraham, we must believe God's promise. Now, has there been, has the Messiah come? That's the next question. And so there are 12 important messianic prophecies. Actually, I, I read another source. Uh, Edersheim said there's over 350, I think, but I think he's including second advent promises. But um, I read in something the other day, there's 110 that prophecies that were fulfilled in the first advent. So Jesus, Yeshua, the Mashiach, of, uh, of Nazareth fulfilled many more than 100 promises uh, they are given in the Hebrew Bible. And no one before Jesus had ever claimed to be the Messiah, not one. You have another significant one, a hundred years later, Bar Kokhba, but it was clear that he was a fraud. Rabbi Akiva put him forth because he hated the Christians. And then you had a few others down through down through the centuries. But Jesus is the first. Yeshua is the first who claimed to be the Messiah. And he fulfilled more than a hundred of these promises. So these are 12 promises. And what we'll see at the end is the mathematical probability of just eight of them coming true in one person was so large the probability was so large, or excuse me, so small, so infinitesimal, that it's virtually impossible. So the first is, and I'll run through these fairly quickly because we're pretty familiar with all of them. The Messiah will be fully human. He's identified by the phrase, the seed of the woman there in Genesis 3.15. The seed describes a descendant, but seed translated sperma in the Septuagint is associated with the male, not the woman. So it immediately should grab people's attention that this is something odd going on with the the birth of this descendant. And from Genesis 5 through through 2 Chronicles, which is the last book in the Hebrew Bible, the way it's organized in the Hebrew Hebrew text, from Genesis 5 through 2 Chronicles, you have all these genealogies. And they're all designed to trace the lineage of the Messiah so that when somebody comes along and claims to be the Messiah, you can go down to the temple and check the, check the birth records and determine if they're, uh, they can trace their lineage all the way back. And that's what Luke does in Luke 4. What Matthew does in Matthew 1 is to show that the line through Solomon ends up with Joseph. But because that included uh, Jeconiah, and Jeconiah was so evil, God said, none of your descendants will sit on the throne. What Matthew is really showing is that Joseph can't be the physical, biological father of Jesus and have Jesus qualified to be the Messiah. So you have from Genesis 5 through Second Chronicles, uh, all of these passages indicating who the seed is. And I want to point out one thing, is that in the Hebrew text... In several of these passages, the pronoun, the third person singular pronoun, it's a suffix to the word in Hebrew, is translated as a third person plural, as they in the English. In the English. But it's a it's third person singular. And by translating it as a plural, it obscures the f- focus of the prophecy as focusing on a single individual. 
Genesis 3.15, God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And then it's translated in the Tanakh, they shall strike at your head. But in the Hebrew, it's a third-person singular, he will strike at your head or at his head, and you shall strike at, it's not there, at his head. And it's not a you. They change the pronoun, so it changes the meaning of the verse. Genesis 12.3, Yahweh blesses, um, makes a covenant, blesses Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the genealogies trace the line from Eve to Noah, Noah to Abraham through Shem, and goes on to say in Genesis twenty two seventeen, uh, blessing I will bless you. This is the Lord speaking. Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is on the seashore. Notice this, and your descendant shall possess the gate of his enemies. Now, literally in the Hebrew, it says your seed. Seed can be one or many, and so. How do you translate it as one or many? Well, you have to read on because when you get down to uh, the gate of his enemies, it's a third-person singular pronoun in the in the Hebrew. It's a third-person masculine singular suffix. But it is translated in even most English, in King James Version, New American Standard, all these others, it's translated as a there. They've got, you know, number confusion. It's a, when you translate it as a, he, he will possess the gate of his enemies, it's got to be talking about a singular descendant and makes it a messianic prophecy. But this is obscured in almost every English translation. Genesis twenty two eighteen, in your descendant, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Third prophecy, the Messiah will be the seed descended from the tribe of Judah. In Genesis 49.10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, so that the tribute shall come to him and the homage of the peoples be his. So this is talking about the Messiah will come through the line of Judah. Fourth, the Messiah will be the seed descended through the line of David. Jeremiah 23.5 and 6. See, a time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up a true branch of David's line. He shall reign as king and shall prosper. Now, when's Jeremiah writing this? I'm not exactly sure. It's either right before or it could even be right after Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And so this is a time of national defeat and collapse, and he's giving them hope. He said, there will be one who comes from David's line. He shall reign as king and shall prosper, and he shall do what is just and right in the land. He will do righteousness. In his days, Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called, the Lord is our, what? Sadiq. He's our righteousness. Fifth, the Messiah will be born of a virgin. Now, there's a lot of debate over the Hebrew words for translated virgin. Alma is the word used here, 
Betula is used elsewhere, but Betula can refer to an older woman, and it does not always necessarily mean a virgin. Alma does not necessarily mean a virgin. It's used only five times. I think it's five times in the Old Testament. But it always refers to a young woman of marriageable age. And they didn't have the problem of finding virgins in the Old Testament period like they do now. It was, uh, it's very clear. And the rabbis who translated this 200 years before Christ into the Septuagint understood the context and the meaning of the word and translated it with the Greek word parthenos, which means virgin. So that's that's one point. You'll always read that. In fact, when I was, we were at a, at a synagogue up in um, Philadelphia, and we were at Shabbat service, and I'm reading through the prayer book and just thumbing the pages because the service is all in Hebrew and you can't understand anything that's going on, so you have to entertain yourself by reading the book. And I noticed that at the end of the section on at the end of Genesis, the readings in Genesis, there was a, like an editor's note that basically described what the the uh, the ways in which Christians will uh, argue for a Messiah and why they're wrong, and it includes the argument that Alma it just says Alma doesn't mean virgin, and it doesn't give you any. First reference, they just just establishes that. Well, if it doesn't mean virgin, why did all those rabbis in Alexandria and Egypt in about 250 B.C. translate it as virgin? Are they all ignorant of Hebrew? No. They were the translators. Isaiah 7.14 says in the Tanakh, Assuredly, my Lord will give you a sign of his own accord. Look. The woman is with child and about to give birth to a son. So that's how they translate it. But this is a really, must be a unique son because the son is going to be called Emmanuel. And if you look at that, the I am is a Hebrew word for with. The M-A-N-U is the suffix for us. And the E-L is God. So you just go God with us. There's got to be something really fascinating about this. And Emmanuel is used three times in Isaiah 7. I think it's once in 8 and once in 9. Six, the Messiah's time of arrival is, is precisely given. Daniel 9, 25 to 26 speaks of the time of seven weeks, seven periods of seven, which is 49 years, plus 62 periods of seven. That calculates out, I'm not going to go through all the calculations, to 173,880 days. They had a 360-day lunar year. And so it begins with the decree from Artaxerxes to Nehemiah on March the 5th, 444 B.C. Now, the reason we know this is decrees were always set forth on the first day of the month. So we know what month it was on the Persian calendar, and we know that the decrees are always uh, made public on the first day of the month. So we can calculate it from March 5th, 444 B.C. to um, the day, the Sunday before the crucifixion 
I think it's April 5th. Now, that may be the day of the crucifixion. But it, it ends before the crucifixion when Christ entered into Jerusalem, according to the lunar calendar. One of the most fascinating prophecies. So, Daniel 9.26, And after these 62 weeks, the anointed one, the Mashiach, will disappear and vanish. Well, literally it says it will be cut off. A much more violent term. He will disappear and vanish. The army of a leader who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That was fulfilled in A.D. 70. But its end will come through a flood. Desolation is decreed until the end of war. Seventh, what will the Messiah accomplish? He is a substitute for the sacrifice of sins. Isaiah 53, 4. Yet it was our sickness that he was bearing, our suffering that he endured. We accounted him plagued, uh, smitten and afflicted by God. But he was wounded because of our our sins, uh, crushed because of our iniquities. He bore the chastisement that made us whole, and by his bruises we were healed. So the you have the prediction that he would be a substitute, a substitute for sin. Eighth, he will be rejected by his people. And this is in Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised, shunned by men, a man of suffering, uh, familiar with disease as one who hid his face from us. He was despised, and we held him of no account. And that was the, pretty much the response of the Jewish people to Jesus. They thought he was of no account. He was despised, and they called for his crucifixion. Not all of them. And it's wrong to say the Jews did it because the Romans, they couldn't do anything without the Romans. And everybody that was there is representative of the whole human race. <clears throat> the ninth point, the ninth prophecy, by knowing about the Messiah and believing in him, he will make the many righteous. The servant in this verse cannot be the nation for the nation could not bear its own punishment. The individual servant, the Messiah, bears the punishment as a substitute for the many. It's Isaiah 53, 11. Now, this is interesting. I ran across this information on this. This remarkable prophecy in Isaiah was understood in the Babylonian Talmud, the Aramaic Targums. Okay, those were commentaries on the Scripture ancient rabbinical commentaries to refer to the Messiah. And in the 14th century, Moshe Cohen Ibn Crispin, who was a rabbi, wrote, the, this prophecy was delivered by Isaiah at the divine command for the purpose of making known to us something about the f- nature of the future Messiah who is to come and deliver Israel in order that if anyone should arise claiming to be himself the Messiah, we may reflect and look to see whether we can observe in him any resemblance to the traits described here. If there is a resemblance, then we may believe that he is the Messiah, our righteous. But if not, we cannot do so. So up up to the 14th century, you still had the majority of rabbis who were treating Isaiah 53 as a messianic prophecy. The other interesting thing about that prayer book is we were reading through the parashahs. Parashah is the portion that is read for each week. So there's, the Torah is divided into 52 sections, and you read through them. 
And then you will also read uh, from the Haftarah. And the Haftarah comes from the prophets. So I thumbed through it, and I looked at the previous days because the day we were there, the reading was from Isaiah 54. So what am I going to look for? Well, let's see what, where Isaiah 53 is. So I moved back a couple of pages, and there was Isaiah 52. There, there's no Isaiah 53. They don't read Isaiah 53. Now, we were talking about this with some of my friends who were there, and one of them has a more current, more modern um, uh, uh, prayer book, and Isaiah 53 was included in his, which I thought was really fascinating. Tenth point, the Messiah would be preceded by a forerunner, according to Malachi 3.1. Behold, I am sending my messenger to clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek shall come to his temple suddenly. As for the angel, the covenant that you desire, he is already coming. Okay, so the Messiah is going to have a forerunner. That's fulfilled by John the Baptist. He prepared the way before the Messiah, Yeshua. Eleven, he would give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, and the lame will walk. Isaiah 35, 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall shout aloud. For waters shall burst forth in the desert streams in the wilderness. Yeshua performed all of those miracles in the first half of his ministry for before all of the people to demonstrate that he was the Messiah. Twelve, the Messiah would be crucified. It was prophesied centuries before crucifixion was even invented. In Psalm 22:16, David wrote, "Dogs surrounded me; a pack of evil ones closes in on me like lions. They maul my hands and feet." Now, Peter Stoner wrote a book back in 1958 that was peer-reviewed by men of the American Scientific Affiliation, and he calculated the probability of one man fulfilling eight, only eight prophecies from, from the time these were written until today as one times 10 to the 17th power. That's one times one followed by 17 zeros. Now, I listed 12 prophecies, but he's only calculating the the probabilities of eight. And he comes to the conclusion that this would be the same, and I didn't, I thought, yeah, I fixed it in one place. So this is 10 to the 17th power. That should be 10 to the 17th. So he uh, illustrates this by laying 10 to the 17th silver dollars across the land of Texas. Now, y'all have mostly been here for a while, and you've driven at least to Austin or San Antonio, Maybe you've driven from here to El Paso, which is really far, and down to Brownsville and up to Amarillo and Lubbock. Texas is an enormous place. And so he calculates that if you were to put this number of silver dollars around the entire state of Texas to a depth of two feet, if one of them was marked with the red X, and you went out and you just stirred that into the whole pot and ended up somewhere up in a Paladur or Canyon or down in Big Bend or maybe a, maybe down in the valley, and you blindfolded somebody and they had to go out and pick out that one marked silver dollar, that's the chances of eight, only eight of these prophecies coming true in Jesus and a, over a hundred 
110 came true in the first coming. How can you explain that away? That's not by chance. So we go back to our question at the beginning of the presentation. The oldest book of the Hebrew Scriptures is arguably the book of Job. One of his friends says, how are we to be made righteous with God? The answer to that question is by faith in the salvation promise of a Messiah who would make many righteous. Abraham, the biological father of the Jewish people, was declared righteous by his faith in the promise of a future Messiah. Yeshua of Nazareth fulfilled more than a hundred prophecies during his first coming. Again and again, he identified himself with the messianic prophecies, promises of scripture. To answer our question, oh, ten chapters later, Job makes his answer clear. In Job 19.25, Job confidently states, But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that he will witness at the last upon the dust. So Job wrote this approximately 2,000 years before Yeshua HaMashiach rose from the dead. Job foresaw that reality, for he went on to say, And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another, how my heart yearns within me. So that leads to the close. Would you not want to have the same assurance, the same certainty of knowledge that Job had 4,000 years ago to know that your Redeemer lives? And that is Yeshua. So that is going to be the new publication. We'll have some out by the conference. Have we printed any? We don't know. They'll be out soon. But I think that, that that's a tool. You, I don't think you, it's not the kind of thing you're just going to hand to somebody to read. But it would be a something that you could discuss and work through with someone. So, any comments, questions? All right, let me close in prayer. Father, thanks for this opportunity to go through this presentation, just thinking about how we would talk with somebody who had a somewhat biblical background but doesn't really have a biblical background on how you require righteousness for salvation and how that is obtained by by faith alone in Christ alone. So, Father, we pray that you would uh, uh, give us openings to share the gospel with people we work with, people we know, people we uh, recreate with, and that we might have open doors to explain the gospel. For the time is short before our Lord returns, and we want to complete the time of the Gentiles. In Christ's name, amen.